Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. And welcome back to New Books in Law, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jane Richards, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Associate Professor David Churchill, Professor Henry Yeomans, and Dr. Ian Channing. They've written a great book called Historical Criminology. It was published by Routledge in 2022. David, Henry, and Ian, welcome to the show. Hey, Jane. Thanks for having us on. It's my pleasure. Pleasure to be here. Excellent. So just to get us started, I'm wondering if each of you can tell me a little bit about yourselves and how you got together to write this book, Historical Criminology. Uh, okay, so I'll kick off, I guess. Um, uh-huh. So I'm um, uh, so I'm David. Uh, I'm a, uh, a social historian uh, by background, a historian of policing and security and that kind of thing. And I ended up joining a criminology group at the University of Leeds uh, some years ago now. And that's how I started to get interested, I suppose, in the relationship between history and criminology. Um, and I'll, I'll go next then. So I'm Henry. And my, my background academically is, is, uh, is in history and criminology. So I've always worked somewhere between those, those two disciplines broadly. Um, and I got more interested in, I suppose, yeah, in crime and law uh, as a PhD student and then ended up in criminology, really, um, but always kept those those wider interests. And so that's why I've, I've ended up with, with this interest in uh, practising historical criminology and talking about historical criminology. And Ian? I, yeah, I also have a background in history and then when I came to do a PhD I did it in socio-legal histories um, and in about policing and police law in particular and that got me more interested in in policing at the same sort of time I started lecturing in criminology and uh, became really interested in the way criminologists then started to look at the past as well so that was sort of my route into combining history and criminology. Great so we've got like some common interests but what I'm interested to know is how you came up with the concept for this book, because it is quite a sort of unusual book. You know, I come from a law background, um, but it, it's quite it's not quite legal theory, but it, it sort of adds something new and it breaks new ground, I think. Yeah, so um, I think, well, I'm going to try and tell the story of how we came to write <laughs> the book, but how far am I inventing this? I'm not I'm not exactly sure. Well, um, what, how I remember it is basically... Um, I had started to kind of try to run some events that kind of brought historians and criminologists together and um, kind of started to realize that it would be useful to have to kind of put down uh, on paper some kind of, uh, I don't know, some structure or some sort of um, of starting point for how we could think about that kind of relationship and also relationship more widely between people who are interested in historical subjects and kind of crime and criminal justice and criminal law. And so I started to think about this and then I remember having a chat with Henry um, and because I thought 
the because he was I knew obviously he was interested in the same sorts of things and um, I thought that there might be a scope for something a bit bigger than I was initially thinking something that kind of tried to lay out some general uh, foundations and some general starting points in this area um, and then I think what happened was independently Ian got in touch with Henry with the same basic idea um, and so then it seemed sort of um, you know, fortuitously or kind of serendipitously that we we're all sort of thinking along the same lines. Um, I think initially we we're a bit hesitant actually about writing the book because mm -hmm. partly because we weren't really sure it would be of interest to too many people more <laughs> ourselves. Um, but over time, I think we we fairly soon started to meet more people who were interested in these things. And I think it fairly quickly became, uh, we became more confident that there would be uh, a, an audience that would find something like this useful. Yeah, and I think that's really true. One thing that struck me reading the book was on the one hand, it speaks to historians, and on the other hand, it does speak to criminal criminologists and socio-legal theorists, you know, sort of everyone in between. I think, you know, there is this great osmosis of ideas and methodologies and processes, um, and sort of it's really broad in terms of readership and who will take something from it and learn from it. So just sort of going back to the book and the introduction of the book, the first line is that there is a difficulty and unease in how criminology relates to the historical. Now, to introduce the book and its key ideas, I'm hoping that you can expand upon what you mean by this. Yeah, so I'll, I'll carry on at this point, I think. Um, so what we were trying to capture there, it's always difficult to know how to start a book, um, uh, but what we were trying to capture there um, was, I suppose, to try to avoid um, certain sorts of misconception or try to avoid going down slightly the wrong path with this. Um, so we didn't want to say that criminology didn't know anything about history because that's just not true. We didn't want to say that criminologists are uninterested in history. Um, we also didn't want to set up the book, and this is actually a signal of how our thinking had developed a little bit from when we first started thinking about it. We didn't want to set up the book as a sort of criminology and history uh, thing, um, as a kind of dialogue between disciplines as such. Um, and so and so that, that line that there's a difficulty around and our knees, it's supposed to suggest that while criminology is interested in history and historical subjects, um, that somehow there always seems to be a problem with history or with historical materials in criminology. Mm -hmm. So there have been, you know, over decades, people have been saying that criminology suffers from a historical amnesia or kind of has a, has a poor, uh, uh, which seemed to suggest that it just hadn't quite come to terms with thinking about historical phenomena and historical materials um, and so that's where we wanted to kind of set the problem it's not necessarily that it's certainly not that criminology was uninterested or, or ignorant or anything like that but that there was something to be resolved here um, and that the way of resolving that might be a kind of fairly sustained and in some respects fairly kind of fundamental discussion about what the historical is and how criminology might usefully learn from that. So then I guess that leads to my next question. What is the difference between criminology, history and historical criminology? And where does your book fit in here? Yeah, so um, this, this is a tricky one in a sense or something that we, uh, that we kind of kept thinking about throughout this. I think one of the things I suppose 
just to sort of say near the beginning of this is that we were really hoping in the book not to kind of um, erect barriers or kind of do any kind of gatekeeping, if that makes sense. Um, the difficulty of writing a book and calling it something like historical criminology is it suggests that there is this thing called historical criminology and you're going to authoritatively talk about it <laughs> and, and you're going to kind of police the borders of it. We weren't really interested in doing that um, and we tried as far as we could um, to, to avoid doing that. Um, the, so, but to come back to your question, what is it and how is it different from criminology and history? Um, I guess what we ended up saying historical criminology was, was it's, it's criminology done with respect to or with regard to the historical, um, that it's criminology that engages seriously with historic, with historical thinking. Um, and we will probably come on to talk about this, but we came to think about historical thinking uh, in terms of uh, a particular engagement with, with time and thinking and putting a certain understanding of time and temporality kind of quite near the forefront of how um, one does criminology. Um, in this respect, historical criminology isn't separate from criminology. It's kind of a way of doing criminology. So that's, I think, the way of, of thinking about it, a bit like, you know, psychological criminology is a way of doing criminology. Um, so historical criminology is a way of doing criminology. How it relates to history is, I guess, a little bit less direct, but obviously some works of history concern crime and other criminological subjects. And those works of history are likely to be historical criminology to our mind it's you know because they're going to be approaching crime or criminal justice or security or whatever from a kind of in a kind of historical way um in that respect from the discipline of history but as we might come on to talk about um our, our thinking about what historical means in this uh, context uh, we we try to extend beyond kind of conventional practice of the discipline of history and i do want to get onto this concept of historical thinking but just before we do that can you tell me perhaps about some of the aims of the book and you know when you were writing it um what surprised you when you were writing it yeah i mean uh, so i suppose in in terms of aims we were kind of hoping mm. to kind of set out what um you know, what a historical approach to criminology might look like and what could inform it, not to kind of um, exhaust all the possibilities, but kind of as a, to kind of try to provide a starting point for people who were trying to think um, broadly and differently about um, about how to do criminology in a historical way. So I guess that's the kind of central aim. Um, in terms of what's surprising, um, I guess from my point of view, and, and others might want to chip in here potentially, from my point of view, I guess one of the surprising things was that we ended from from me starting as a sort of social historian coming into criminology, I ended up kind of going and looking at things which are way far from where I thought this would take us. Um, so, you know, I ended up reading stuff about, you know, settler colonialism, ended up reading stuff about futures, um, ended up reading stuff which was not at all on the kind of um, my kind of idea of what this book would be like when it started but I think kind of that was testament to how well I hope in some respect that's testament both to how we all learned from each other and we all learned from it this book was something bigger than any of us individually could have done I think um, and also testament to how hopefully we try to take seriously what we were saying and try to kind of push it where it where it could possibly go um, but yeah I don't know if others have any anything else they want to chip in on this point 
Yeah, I think one of the things that I just want to take away from it, and it, it's a name, but also it links to what surprises me, is, is that aim that we had of wanting it to reach beyond just criminologists that were interested in history, taking out of a silo of something, you know, that was just um, the, about the historical, but making it relevant to all criminologists and criminologists more broadly, so it's not just another, um, you know, um, different, another type of criminology that might get labelled or siloed into particular areas. But I think the aim was, and it was quite a grand aim, wasn't it, to, to try and, you know, make it accessible and um, useful for all criminologists, not just, not just those that like to do a bit of history. Yeah, and I'd just, just add to that um, briefly. I, I, I agree. I thought the same, the, the, the same sort of breadth surprised me a bit. Um, and that's that was really interesting as well. Um, I ended up reading a lot of a lot of life course criminology because we we decided that there's something historical about life course criminology. I read a lot of studies of crime trends because we realised there's something historical about studying a trend. And in these ways, I yeah, I ended up engaging with with bodies of literature um, that that I didn't I hadn't thought out thinking of as particularly historical and particularly worth discussing in this book. But having set out this idea of of what we think historical thinking is, it followed that well these 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 people doing this research in these areas, they in certain ways they are thinking historically. So let's engage with that and try and use that to uh, have a have a useful conversation about what historical criminology is and what it can be. Yeah, and actually, I think that was one of my favourite things about the book, the, the breadth of it. Um, you know, I was reading about things that, you know, on first encounter with the book, I wouldn't have imagined sort of would be in there. And I think that added a sort of richness to it. Um, so this breadth and depth, as you mentioned, David, you know, settler colonialism, and then there's, you know, life course and prisons and security. There was just so much covered. Um, and it all sort of like, there was this common thread running through, and you've all touched on this, this idea of historical criminology. Um, so I'm wondering now, perhaps this is a good time to talk about it, um, what is historical thinking? Yeah, so um, this is, <laughs> this is, if you like, the kind of million-dollar question or whatever, yeah. um, because when we set out the book, initially we said, well, we think historical criminology is kind of doing criminology in a historical way or thinking historically about criminology. Um, and then we, but then we did at some point have to say, well, what does that mean? <laughs> um, and um, so um, I kind of stuck on my hand at that point and said, well, I'll have a go at figuring out what that might mean, um, and ended up going away and reading an awful lot of stuff um, to try to, to try to get closer to this. So I guess I, I think one thing that would be useful to say at the beginning, and I've kind of hinted this already, is that we wanted it to mean something other or more than doing history. That's not to kind of do down history in any way. Like history is obviously a very well-established discipline. It has its own, um, you know, conventions and methods and whatever, which have, which are, are, are very um, very well established. But but. If historical criminology just meant the history of crime, then there's already lots of books about the history of crime. So there's kind of nothing to do there. Um, so we wanted to kind of push that idea a bit further. Um, and what we kind of settled on in the end um, was to think about, was to talk about historical thinking in terms of putting time and temporality or a particular understanding of time and temporality center. Um, so basically the, the 
first like substantive chapter of the book draws quite a lot on theories this kind of theoretical and philosophical literature about history and uh, time and related uh, themes to try to um, put some meat on the bone of that um, and basically um, what we tried to do was to draw from that literature um, some key points and we ended up with five five key points which are kind of central to thinking about historical time um, so we said that it that historic thinking historically is to think in terms of change uh, and continuity is to think in terms of events and eventfulness is to think in terms of the passage of time or the kind of flow of time or a sense of process um, is to think in terms of tenses so pasts and presents and futures and it's to think of an embodied time, which is a sort of slightly tricky one. We had a lot of discussion about this word, but um, a sense in which things belong in time or a sense in which, you know, times are composed of things. Um, so, you know, that something is a thing of its time, for example, um, or something's a thing ahead of its time. That's a, a kind of th an, an idea of time that encompasses that sort of idea of belonging or, or, or an identity between times and um, subjects of inquiry. So yeah, that's kind of what we came to think of historical thinking as. I just want to dig down into this a little bit more. You talked about these concepts of time and temporality. And one thing I do really did like was this concept of embodied time because it was, it was quite unique, um, but it felt like it did break new ground. So just sort of digging into this, you do introduce the concept of historical time. Can you sort of elaborate more on this concept and describe describe its relationship with criminology? Yeah, so I suppose um, so. The the kind of key points of historical time that I've just outlined kind of mm -hmm. figure in criminology in different ways, um, and I suppose this was kind of what the book as a whole was trying to elaborate, was trying to was trying to show that criminology already engages with historical time as we understand it in lots of different ways, but not necessarily always self consciously. Um, so to give a couple of examples, um, and we may come back to some of these points, but I mean, Henry already mentioned life course criminology. Life course criminology is about, you know, typically offenders' lives and major things that happen in offenders' lives and how that shapes their offending or their desistance behavior. So that already integrates a pretty you know, large parts of that literature, at least, integrate an appreciation, therefore, of kind of change. So there are major things that can happen that can change, you know, someone's path in life from, you know, per persisting in a pattern of offending or desisting, on the other hand. Um, similarly, for example, um, certain areas of criminology um, pay close regard to kind of events. Events are important in some areas of criminology, particularly for things that people study that don't happen very often. So kind of riot and public order issues was an area where people tend to focus on particular events um, in the same sort of way as historians might do. Um, uh, now that's not necessarily the case with most of the stuff that criminology covers, but in that instance, because obviously riots don't happen every day, then um, then then they're there. So what what we were trying to do, I suppose, was say that you know an attention to historical time is an attention to how these things manifest itself in what um, in what you're studying in terms of crime or criminal justice or what have you, and that we can already see this in certain aspects of the criminological literature. Um, and so partly what we're going to do is to try to just bring that to the surface and, and then to sort of then push that and extend it to say, well, what would it look like to think about these things more generally or in other areas where they're not necessarily so, so prominent? Yeah, 
Right, thank you. Yeah, and I do think that comes through. Um, this idea, you know, that it's sort of, we think about, is a, re a challenging the way that things do manifest in the way they're studied, the production of knowledge. Um, yeah, that certainly comes through in the book. So perhaps now it's a good time to turn to the next chapter on time and method. So my first question is in this context is what is criminology's interest in historical time as distinct from, I don't know, regular time or just sort of time generally? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll jump in here. So Thanks, that, Henry. Um, I, I think for us, there's a value in viewing things value for criminologists but i think for, for mm -hmm. scholars more widely there's a value in viewing things as uh, existing and moving uh, through time so what i mean by that is things very rarely stay the same right things change things are dynamic things are different from one day to the next and actually starting to build research projects which examine um, how things move through time is, is a really fruitful way of doing research. A lot of research in social science subjects is based more on snapshots. I'm going to do a bunch of interviews with a group of uh, judges and magistrates taking place over three or four months in a particular place. It's a snapshot of things at a certain time. And the, the risk in doing snapshots like that is that you miss a lot of this movement. You miss how these things change, how perhaps, you know, the judiciary are, um, how their demographic characteristics are changing, how their attitudes are developing, how their powers are being constrained or are increasing. You miss any sense of, of what's evolving, of what's developing, of what is historical in that particular moment. So the, the 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 methodological question then that that we look at in part of this book in the second chapter is really how to inject that interest in the historical into social science methods which are not generally geared up to catering for it. I'm wondering in this context, can you provide some examples of what you mean by of this idea of you know this concept of how things move through time as opposed to sort of studying things as snapshots. Yeah. Um, so I suppose, okay, so to pick an example that's been in the yeah. news, I don't yeah. know when this will go out to listeners, Jane, right, but we've just had the coronation in Britain. Yes. Um, okay. You know, and I presume a lot of the world will know, I don't know. Um, but there's been quite a big news story because a number of protesters, anti-monarchy protesters, were arrested before the coronation took place, despite, you know, having even, they hadn't even started to protest. They planned a completely peaceful protest. Um, there's been a lot of controversy about those arrests. So I suppose if we were going to look at that synchronically, if we were going to look mm -hmm. at that as a snapshot um, we might just do some interviews with people who are involved, the protesters, the police, we might do a study of how these things were covered in newspapers. We might look at the immediate events as they happen. That's generally what social science research would do. But I think if we think about things historically, it, it's required that we go a bit further and we try and understand perhaps a bit more about the changing legislation which led to those arrests because there was a change in public order legislation which came into effect just before the day so we'd want to understand well what what new what powers did the police have what new powers did they get that allowed them to make these arrests so that would involve some sense of of change of uh, perhaps lawmaking as an event it would involve some some historical aspects 
But equally, we could go back a lot further and we could start to situate this in the, the longer term history of how uh, the police deal with political protests. Now, Ian's done a lot of research specifically on this topic, right? So I won't say too much because he's genuinely the expert here. But but there is, yeah, there's a whole history of how protests are police, policed. There's a particular um, criticism that's decades old that the police tend to be harsher on what we would think of as progressive political demonstrations as opposed to say conservative or right-wing political protests so there's this whole historical context there here as well as this whole situation of changing legal powers which we could also bring into an analysis of what happened on that coronation day and once we start to think about things in that way and research things in that way we're engaging historical thinking much more. Yeah, that's really helpful and insightful. And I do think this is what makes the book so useful because it is transferable. These concepts of time and method um, trans are transferable beyond the examples in the book and sort of generally in research in these areas. So then can you tell me about some of the methodological techniques that you discuss in the book and perhaps their limitations? Yeah, it, it's, it, we try to, I suppose, talk about methodological techniques in a fairly broad way because it's, we didn't want it to be like a methods textbook. Um, and, and I suppose what we tried to do was kind of point to concerns or issues to be addressed or things to be built into inquiries. But there, there was, there was, there's some basic pieces of advice we have. The first is, is, to consider historical background and that's pretty straightforward but you know if you're writing about the coronation arrests then yeah what legal powers are changing what how previous protests been dealt with you would expect that or you you could in, you could use some of that um historical background to set up what you're going to do even if that is then in methodological terms a snapshot of what happened on that day um, there are other things we do, other things we suggest. So perhaps, again, if people are doing this snapshot type research, I'm doing interviews, I'm doing a survey, I'm doing observation, or maybe other methods, but particularly interviews and surveys, you can capture time a bit better in certain questions you ask. You can ask retrospective questions. Tell me about this. How have we got to here? What did you used to do? How did this used to be? What are your memories of this? And equally, you can ask forward-looking questions about future plans, about aspirations, about expectations. So even within research that takes place in a specific moment, you can inject some consideration for past and present if you are minded to do so. So that was that was another one of the suggestions. There was several others. I mean, doing repeated sweeps of data collection is really useful in lots of projects. Um, so there are other ways in which, yeah, doing that, taking regular measurements, looking at change in continuity through time in terms of how certain variables change um, or how particular research subjects discuss topics at particular points in time. It, taking multiple sweeps of data can... Um, can can help you to kind of chart those things. So they're like a few suggestions that we come up with, but but they're all kind of ways to to try and prompt people to think a bit more about how to how the historical could figure in their research. So there's no kind of set method of this is exactly what you need to do. It varies. It depends what people are doing, what the topic is. Is it quantitative? Is it qualitative? But we're confident that in in whatever research project is going on, researchers can 
introduce some elements of historical thinking in there, and we think it's beneficial to do so. Um, so hopefully that chapter gives some kind of ideas or suggestions for how how researchers can do that. Yeah, I found it um, really helpful. You, you did write in this chapter about this idea of temporal units of criminological analysis, and you've sort of touched on this a moment ago. So maybe we can sort of dig into it a bit more. So you describe as the trend, the life course, the event, the recurrence and the inheritance. And I know you've mentioned some of these, but I'm just wondering if you can go into a bit of detail about these concepts and what are the implications for historical criminology? Yeah, of course. Well, I think I think we use the term a bit loosely, temporal units. Mm -hmm. I think I think I think I would attribute it to Karl Mannheim, right? So I think the sociologist Karl Mannheim uses the term and he uses it as a way of describing generation, right? So Mannheim wrote this pioneering sociology of, of generations, and it's held up as this, this classic that everyone goes back to before they study that. Um for Mannheim, what he means when he says generation is a temporal unit is that it's a concept that has a sense of time to it. You know, a generation is of a time, people born around the same time, people maturing or going through uh, at the same time. There's something shared and it's something temporal. But equally, it's not something that's related to clock time, usually. So it's not something that's necessarily measurable in hours, days, years. So the other temporal units that we try to look at in this chapter, because generation doesn't figure that strongly in criminological research, the ones we look at are similarly things that have a sense of time to them, concepts that are used regularly within criminological studies, often used in a quite unthinking way by people because they've become so common and so um, familiar that we don't really recognise them as concepts, but they're concepts that possess a sense of time. So, uh, yeah, a trend is something, is, it's a change through time, an increase, a decrease. There is no trend without time. There's a sense of time within that. Um, the life course, yeah, I mean, you, you can measure a life course in years, but at the same time, it can be short, it can be long. It's not something defined by clock time. It's defined more in a narrative sense, the life course, right? It has a beginning, it has a middle, it has an end. Um, and the other ones we, we talk about similarly are just are just concepts that are meant to or concepts that possess some sense of time that we think is is well that is used widely within criminology and we think is used quite productively in useful ways. So I suppose part of what we do in that chapter is try and say if we recognize these temporal units for what they are, that can be fruitful in itself. It can help us reflect on what we're doing and why we're doing it. And then we make some kind of loose suggestions about how we might think about, well, if, if you're using, you know, the trend all the time, but you're not using the recurrence as a temporal unit, perhaps you could think about swapping it up. Perhaps you could think about using different ones. And would that open up new insights that would prompt different methods and that might lead to different findings, different insights. So it's it's a bit of a it's a little bit of a toolbox really i think mm -hmm. by kind of identifying what the tools are these 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 temporal units we hope that people can a, a better place to kind of pick them up and use them in in new and different ways yeah and i think that was one of the key insights from the book we're sort of challenging what we are doing identifying what we're doing and then starting to question and by doing so we're questioning why we're doing it that way um and so i thought that was really powerful because so much of it's implicit, Jane. That's yeah. the thing. I mean, yeah. 
Yeah, everyone talks about trends, life courses. Mm -hmm. we, we don't think of them as having a sense of time when we pick them up and use them. They're mm -hmm. just normal everyday terms. Um, but yeah, they they possess a certain a certain sense of time, and if we can we can identify that and reflect on it, it means that perhaps we can think about doing research differently. So yeah, hopefully that I'm glad that came across because that that is a I suppose a kind of key aspiration. It ties back to what Dave was saying that the point isn't that criminologists don't do historical stuff well. Lots of criminologists are really interested in historical research, and they're quite attentive to how historical time is important for what they're studying um, much of what we do is about just just reflecting on that and trying to help people identify I suppose what is historical about what they do now the aim might be well the aim is partly that we do more of that but we could also do it in different ways yeah and I did find that really interesting this idea that there are these implicit assumptions in the way that research is done especially as it relates to time but, you know, in reflection upon this, you know, we can sort of question what we're doing and that in itself is valuable in the research, um, in the production of knowledge. Um, I want to move to the next chapter, which is theory and concepts. So you write that it might be assumed that historical thinking may offer a lot in terms of thinking about theoretical questions, which are cast in transcendental terms, such as why crime rates rise and fall across time and what is crime? But you also write that there is a tension in different modes of inquiry in history, history and sociology. So in this context, can you tell me about theories and concepts of historical time and any sort of tensions between them? Yeah, so when, when we start talking about theory, one of the early points we make in that chapter and is, is, is a point that's been made um, several times before about a tension that exists between different modes of inquiry, between the way historians um, do their research and the way social scientists do their research. And, and typically this tends to point towards historians criticizing social scientists for a lack of historical context in their work, but also social scientists criticizing the work of historians for being under-theorized. So there's this tension that exists there. So what we argue is if you think historically about theories and concepts, then we could come to kind of appreciate them as historical phenomena in themselves. So the theories and concepts that we use today, or even the theories and concepts that we've discounted um, that have existed or, or, or created in the past that we don't see as so relevant um, today, they're all shaped by historical context and flows of time themselves. So then when we start to think about using theory as, as criminologists and, and thinking historically when we, when we use theory, um, there are different ways that can be achieved. Um, one of the ideas that we talk about is this idea of portable theory. So having um, a theory which we can, um, that might be quite contemporary, but we can use it to try and help explain um, periods in, in, of, of the past. And here there's both opportunity and danger that we point out. I mean, the big opportunity here is that the past provides a vast testing ground for theory. But at the same time, we also need to question whether that portable theory is suited to different time periods. So within each time period, we should see the uniqueness of that period. We should see the specific historical conditions um, and the context of that period of the past where you know, the theories that we're using say might not necessarily be so compatible. Um, so there's, there's, there's questions to be asked, but also opportunity um, as well. 
Another way we talk about using theory is looking across time more broadly to theorize why continuity or change uh, might happen or why, why changes occur over a, over a broader period of time. So here, um, we're looking sort of more specifically at um, historically specific theories. So understanding the actual contexts of why change is happening. Um, and by doing this, one of the things that we sort of argue that uh, we can do by theorizing about change over time is to help try and close that gap between theory and historical explanation. Um, yeah, thank you. And so then, Mike, I guess my next question is, how useful is theory in this context and how can its usefulness be tested? Um, some of the examples that we use mm -hmm. demonstrate some of that prospect that I talked about, but also some of that, some of that risk. So one of the um, examples that we use is a discussion on police culture. Um, so as a theory that helps explain you know, problematic behaviours and decision-making within policing in the contemporary area, um, things about, you know, that help explain corruption, discrimination, and some of the more problematic behaviors in policing today. Um, we highlight in the book a number of researchers that have used that theory to help demonstrate some sort of lineage or traditional heritage of, of those problematic cultures in, in historic um, contexts as well. So this, on one level, offers a really unique um, insight into the traditions of police culture. It also you know, offers a sense of that inheritance. We can see longevity, we can see persistence, um, and, and things that persist over time, despite sort of wider social and cultural changes. Yet at the same time, we also highlight some of the dangers of, of doing this as well. So at the same time, there's a danger that the, the, the um, retrojection of explanatory frameworks of the present uh, might overlook some of those structural differences in, in the past. So we still need that sort of historical context. We still need to do that um, um, research um, in order to you know, establish uh, um, whether these explanations that we're um, using uh, these theories that we're using, whether they are, you know, relevant to the past and we're doing justice to the past by, by using them in that way. Yeah, and so in this chapter, the argument sort of centres on the idea that historical thinking has much to contribute to the theoretical and conceptual inquiries in criminology. Now, I really liked how you wrote here that some of its contributions are disruptive, but they're no less important for that. Can you tell me more about this disruption? Yeah, I'm, I might jump in there, uh, mm -hmm. Jane. Um, so, yeah, I, I think I think as exactly as Ian has just been saying, one of the mm -hmm. one of the things that we thought that a uh, historical perspective does is it kind of offers um, a different and in, and in some ways, yes, yeah, uh, as we put it, kind of disruptive um, force in thinking about theory and concepts. So, you know, very crudely, you know, um, social science theory is is sometimes taken as if it applies kind of anywhere and, and, and any place kind of thing that it's sort of perfectly portable, as Ian has explained, you know, you can take a theory of whatever it might be, you know, uh, why, why juveniles commit crime and you can apply it to mid-century US or you can apply it to contemporary uh, Europe or whatever in that kind of way. And, and, and I suppose one of one of the ways that it's disruptive then is by is by reasserting the importance of historical context and by bringing out that tension between the specificities of particular points in time 
and the potential utility of a kind of general theoretical idea. It's very similar in that respect to comparative research, I think, um, that some of the implications of thinking historically are a bit like thinking comparatively. You know, if you're comparing you know, um, at far-flung parts of the world and different cultures, then you sometimes erode what you thought were general ideas or general theories. And in the same way, thinking historically can do the same thing. And when we were thinking about, because um, we discussed in this chapter theory and concepts as well, so kind of the co very concepts we use when we're thinking um, about um, the, the subject matter of criminology. And again, there, there's a fruitful but potentially disruptive role for historical thinking. So um, often when, uh, you know, a social scientist, we just, we really want to just get clear on our concepts so we can go investigate them in, in the world empirically, right? We really just want to know what uh, you know a crime is or what um you know say uh, a police is so we can just go and study them one of the contributions that historical thinking can make is to kind of slightly um undo what we thought we knew uh in terms of those concepts whether it's by looking at how they originated in a very very different context but um and therefore making what's we thought was familiar seems strange um, or whether it's for example looking at how you know particular concepts have arisen in the context of arguments uh, rather than out of consensus um, in those ways historical thinking can kind of again slightly complicate what we what we think we know um, and make us pause to think about whether we actually, you know, whether these concepts are actually kind of fruitful or neutral um, for inquiry or whether we, re we kind of need to sort of rethink where we're the starting point uh, that we approach study today from. So that's, I suppose, what we were getting at there, that it has distinctive, in some ways disruptive, but we think how ultimately kind of fruitful contributions to make when we're thinking about theories and concepts that guide our, our regular uh, research. Yeah, and I do think that comes through this idea of sort of eroding assumptions that are sort of inherent in concepts and theories, which are otherwise assumed universal. I really, I really like that idea of sort of rethinking your starting point before going forward into your research, um, your project or your methodologies. So then the next chapter surprised me somewhat. Um, it's titled Past and Futures. I, I wasn't expecting anything about futures, especially in a book, especially titled Historical Criminology. Um, so you open it by writing, almost by default, most research in criminology focuses on the present. Relatively free studies venture sustained discussions of times past or times yet to come. So what I found novel here was that the focus of this chapter seems to be on the of the significance of not just the past, but also the future and the implications on present day research and observation. So I'm wondering if you can provide some sort of context for listeners as to how the past and the future intersect with the present from a criminological viewpoint. Yeah, so what we were um, doing in this chapter and what this chapter really does is, is, is draw out that um, element of historical thinking that is the tensed time. So thinking about the past, the present and the, and the future. And the past and the future both bear upon the present in different ways. Um, and this is what we're really interested here. So, you know, the past still exists in the present in many ways. It exists in things like memory or, or haunting. And likewise, the future also exists in the realms, you know, in the present, in the realms of plans or prophecy or expectancy. So, 
the way in which we're haunted by the past or the future says quite a lot about the present um, concerns um, themselves. Um, so we do talk about, you know, things like um, memory, collective memory, and you know, when we think about memory, we recognise its selectiveness. Um, it's, but not only that, is it's it's recollected in the present, so it can't really escape its presentness either. And there are factors that influence what's remembered uh, and how it's remembered, and also what is what's forgotten as well. So for criminologists, we think it's important to explore and challenge certain memories of the past. So one example that we highlight is the myth of the golden age of policing. So this collective or selective memory about policing is kept alive by dramatic representations of the past. Um, but this narrative, this golden age narrative, excludes the collective memories that differ across other social groups, ac across race, across class and across generations. So understanding the way that different groups have experienced policing in the past um, and, and this experience and this memory could be shaped by things like collective memory, it could be inherited memory that's passed down generationally. These memories of the past help explain feelings, uh, views, um, anxieties, um, experiences about the past that still exist in some way in the present. So thinking historically then, there's a need to construct counter memories, not just to accept sort of dominant narratives, but also, you know, remember, um, you know, other memories, other discourses. And, you know, the, and, you know, and, and as criminologists, we should, you know, also be illuminating these hidden discourses that still have relevance in the present. So what we talk about when we talk about collective memories is to talk about the plurality of collective memories and the responsibility to highlight that plurality as these are all memories that exist in different ways and different shapes um, still in the present. Yeah, and in exploring this concept of present past, you've just talked a bit about memory um, and we've talked about history and you just touched on this idea of haunting and another one that comes through in the book is trauma. So I found all of these quite powerful examples in the book because then you talk about this idea of fixing the past. So can you... You've just mentioned this idea of, you know, constructing the dominant narrative and it excludes so much um, and the memories, you know, of sort of other groups, other social groups, other generations are can be excluded from these dominant narratives. So in this context, can you tell me about these concepts and what we can learn from this exploration? Yeah, so when, when we talk about trauma and haunting, one mm. of the things that we're doing really then is... is recognizing the elements of the past, in particular difficult and dark pasts, they're not just consigned to history. Um, they still have ways that haunt the present um, today. And, and in terms of fixing the past, we highlight a few different ways in which attempts to fix the past might be made today, whether that's cold case investigations, whether that's public inquiries into past events or, or truth commissions. So in many ways, all these sorts of things are responses um, to try and create a break from the past, try and fix and heal those past traumas, um, you know, to correct an injustice, uh, and and also then to provide an opportunity to move on to it, to move on from it. So that then links again to, to futures by acknowledging past wrongs. Um, closure can potentially be had, and new futures can then flourish or happen because because of this fixing. Um, but also what we also highlight and make 
sure that um, you know there's there's still an awareness of is you know despite a, a commission or an inquiry that healing might not happen for all all groups some some groups might reject that fix that's being um, um, you know placed on on a, on a past trauma and uh, and struggles for justice can can continue and um, you know beyond beyond attempts to fix them as well yeah and so bringing this idea of sort of attempts to fix the past into this concepts of futures can you tell me what do you mean by futures what what is this concept uh yeah um i'll 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 take this one um so this was one of the points where we really did try to push i think um the 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 push kind of um or i suppose to kind of make good on on what we'd said historical thinking was so if historical thinking is concerned with tense that's obviously everyone knows tenses are past presents and futures um then we thought we couldn't really leave futures out um uh and um yeah as you said jane like it's not what you'd expect picking up a book about historical chronology but it's important for us to try to sort of really push this and see whether this idea um did follow through so exactly as ian said you know, the past bleeds through into the present in all kinds of ways. Um, the past, you know, our memories and our uh, traumatic associations with the past or whatever authoritative narratives about the past are all important constituents of the present. And so too are the ways in which we relate to the future. Um, and so what we were trying to do here is to say that there are different ways of relating to the future or different futures that figure in the present. Um, and to try to draw out some ways in which that's relevant for kind of established areas of criminology, really. Um, so one of them that we talk about is about the future as a kind of horizon. So this is, you know, a, a fairly common metaphor, but it's, you know, the future is the thing that you're marching towards, or it's the thing that you're working towards or striving towards. Um, it's the kind of relationship you have to the future if you're working on any kind of project, really. Um, but a, a particular example that we draw out are kind of projects of reform. So reform is a very big theme in criminology uh, and criminal justice, you know, reform of police, reform of the law, reform, etc. Et cetera, et cetera, form of offenders. Um, and all of these te- often posit the future as this kind of this point that we're going towards. We can see, we can almost see it, um, but we need, you know, we need to work to get there. Um, that's so that's one way in which the future figures. And then we develop a couple of others as well. Um, one is how the future presents itself in the present, if you like, as a field of risk or uncertainty. Um, and that draws us into the whole literature on security. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, a lot of very interesting work that we draw on there that's uh, already been done about different ways in which different kinds of security projects imagine the future as either, you know, a risk that can be calculated as in insurance or, or a kind of catastrophic risk that can't be calculated um, that you have to, to kind of try to prevent in some other kind of way. Um, and then the last one, um, and this was the one that, that in some ways the one that kind of found most um, most uh, unexpected or kind of most revealing was about the the idea that there's kind of there's no meaningful relation for some people to the future or not in the traditional way um, that w- that one might think. Um, so for people who are in you know really kind of abject um, conditions, people who are under you know really kind of uh, punitive. Um, um, uh, conditions or people who are 
in in situations of real oppression there might not there might not seem to be any future to strive towards at all um and and so there we kind of play with or we kind of ex try to explore the the absence of a sense of future or the absence of any sense of progress or possibility or hope um and 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 that seemed actually to us kind of one of the most resonant with criminology really um and, and especially the idea that in depriving people of a sense of future that might be one of the most um one of the most kind of egregious crimes you could think to commit and we try to connect that with uh you know literatures on um settler colonialism literatures on genocide in ways that hopefully kind of will make some sense um um to to people listening to this yeah and it really did um it was it was quite meaningful to read um and very very insightful so i enjoyed that very much now just sort of bringing the book to the a close a little bit in the conclusion you know you sort of sum up quite neatly um t can point 10 key points rather of historical criminology and you sort of Bring the book together and give me a bit of an overview of these. Do you have any key takeaways? Yeah, I think the the ten points. I mean, some of them are sort of mm. summative, um, yeah. and some of them, I, I suppose, the topics we didn't really discuss fully, but wanted to kind of just offer a few thoughts on and perhaps mm. suggestions for for further discussion. Um, but in terms of the summative points, what what we really emphasise in that conclusion is. Is, is what we think historical criminology is and what we want it to be. So what I mean by that is that we define historical criminology as an engagement with historical time in the ways that, that we've talked about. Um, and I think that's important because historical criminology is a, a, a growing field. It's, it's rapidly growing. There are people all around the world describing themselves and the work they do as historical uh, or describing themselves as historical criminologists and the work they're doing as historical criminology. And there are a few kind of definitions floating around. S some people think historical criminology is defined by the study of stuff that happened in the past. Others think it's defined by the use of archival methods, like traditionally historians, uh, traditionally the historian's method. We don't really think it's about content. We don't think it's about methods. We think it's about engaging seriously with historical time, with these ideas that, that David described around change, around events, around flow, tense and embodiment. So we, we reiterate that point quite clearly. And I think what arises from that um, is this idea that historical criminology is is to us it's a it's a core approach to the study of criminology or to doing research in criminology um dave said earlier it's it's it, maybe it's a bit like biological criminology right you can do criminology in a biological way you can do it in a psychological way you can do it in a legal way you can do it in a sociological way what we're setting out here is that we think you can also do it in a historical way and lots of of scholars working you know now and working in the past in all sorts of different fields we think of effectively practiced historical criminology as we've talked about so that's that's meaningful for us i think what we what we want historical criminology to be is is recognized as such recognized as a core approach there's a risk that it will become a sub field or sub discipline 
And we've seen that with historical sociology, it, it emerged, especially in the, the 70s and 80s, it became quite popular. Then it just became a little subfield of specialism, its own networks, its own events, its own publications. It didn't speak to the rest of sociology. It didn't remake sociology as a discipline in the way that, you know, Charles Tilley and Fader Scotchpole and all the people who, who, who pioneered and became famous doing this research, all the ways that they wanted. Um, so we're kind of we're wary of of something similar happening. We we really want historical criminology, yes, to to grow and develop. And it's great that people call themselves historical criminologists. It's great that research is labelled in this way, but we want to maintain that relationship with central mainstream criminology because lots of that central mainstream criminology is historical in certain ways, as we've talked about. And lots of it, I think, could benefit from being more historical, from recognising historical research as a core approach to this subject area. So that's a point that I think we make uh, quite quite strongly. I hope we make quite strongly in the in the conclusion. Um, but there are, yeah, there are, there are a few other things that come up. You know, we talk a little bit in there about well, what does historical criminology mean for, for the curriculum? How should we consider teaching this? Um, what, what does it mean for uh, public engagement for, for when academics you know, talk to non-academics about research? So we do offer some thoughts and suggestions on, on, on these issues as well. Yeah, and I do think that comes through that this idea that historical criminology should be recognised as a core approach as opposed to this sub-discipline. Um, and in terms of the other points you've just raised, I think that's um, really good reason for people to go and read the book and um, learn more about this. Um, so thank you all. I've taken up a lot of your time already. But just before you go, I'm wondering if you can all tell me, um, in turn, what are you working on now? Um, okay, um, so I'm happy to go first. Um, so um, I'm currently working on the history of the security industry in modern Britain, um, which is something I've been doing for a little while, but um, I've now returned to quite centrally. And one of the ways I'm trying to build on what we've did in this book is trying to think about how you can use historical materials to kind of build uh, theories about security and insecurity um, and use it to kind of revisit, um, uh, sorry, use kind of historical materials to re kind of revisit past kind of criminology literature um, and kind of, um, yeah, uh, offer new perspectives on things that we thought we understood fairly well. So yeah, that's what I'm doing. Thanks, David. And Henry, do you want to fill us in? What are you up to? Um, I'm going to mention two things, if I may. Yeah, of course. The first is, is that one of the projects I developed off the back of this book mm -hmm. was um, some research around path dependence and I became very interested in in why change doesn't happen right so we talk a lot about change in the book and how important it is to study it but there are lots of areas of criminal justice policy and areas of law where change is very slow and where attempts to reform uh, the law to reform criminal justice institutions and practices where these things just just fail or, or if they succeed it takes decades centuries uh, progress can be painfully slow. So um, I got interested in this idea of path dependence as a way to understand a continuity, I suppose, more than change. Um, and with Tom Guiney and Ashley Rubin 
uh, edited a special issue of the Howard Journal, which has just come out. So um, that's really good. And it's got a collection of papers by scholars from all over the world, all looking at different instances, I suppose, of things like stability, of continuity, mm -hmm. of ways to try and look at nuanced relationships between change and continuity, but all with a view, I think, to kind of to trying to make reform more possible, more achievable within criminal justice. So that's one thing. The, the thing that I'm, I'm perhaps working on a bit more right now is a project on illicit alcohol, uh, mostly mm -hmm. looking at England and Wales in the 19th century. So most of my research is on alcohol and uh, it, it's a whole project around illicit distillation and smuggling and um, unlicensed selling of gin and whiskey and things like that. So it's a wonderful project that I'm greatly enjoying. That sounds really fun to do and really interesting. And then Ian, just to sort of wrap it up, what are you working on now? Thanks. Um, if I may, just briefly two projects that I'm working yeah, on of as, course. as well. Um, the first is a deviant leisure project on the history of caravanning and caravan holidays. Um, and what this does is, is recognize hidden harms within the development of the caravan industry and in um, leisure caravanning. And that's to put it alongside the parallel history of the marginalization of gypsies and travelers. And a lot of this, there's, there's a lot of hidden harms that we're, we're uncovering that relate to the marginalization of gypsies and travelers that relate to the, the development of the leisure caravan industry. And another project that um, I'm just in the very <coughs> start of, of getting involved in and it's one that sort of I was inspired to do after writing the book and that's to look at um, social memory and, and haunting and how they relate to public space. Um, so in particular I'm going to be looking at the way in which social memory exists in public space by the way of statues, place names and things like that and, and what you know, the way in which we try to memorialize the past, what effects that has um, in the present to, the, to people watching it, and also the changes that we see happening at the moment in terms of what, how we, how we remember the past. So, you know, there's talks around a lot of statues coming down, place names being replaced, and they're being replaced by, um, you know, obviously other elements of, of, of the past that we're, that we're remembering. So um, there's some of the things that I'm um, interesting to developing at the moment. That all sounds really fascinating and I think it is your diverse innocent research projects that's one of the strengths of this current book you know it all sort of comes together and it's it's really rich and wonderful to read. Um, so just to sort of wrap it up I'm Jane Richards I've been speaking with Professor sorry Associate Professor David Churchill, Professor Henry Yeomans and Dr Ian Channing. Their book is Historical Criminology it was published by Routledge in 2022 this is New Books in Law, a channel on the New Books Network. David, Henry and Ian, thank you for your time. Thank you, Jane. Thanks so much, Jane. That's great.